Oh, you could open your Bibles um, and join me in First um, John. Uh, we were there last week. We'll return this week. God willing, we'll be back next week. I just want to open with a word of prayer. Father, I pray just as that song was being sung, my heart went out um, to the calling that you've given um, to those um, that are um, privileged um, to stand in pulpits and preach to your people. I pray, Lord God, that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit, that, that your people would see your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, high and lifted up this morning that they would recognize in their hearts, in their minds, in their souls, and with all their strength that you are a good, good Father. And Father, I also pray for every individual in this room that they know without doubt, with certainty, based on your own word, that they are loved by you. Father, if there's one here that is not yours, I ask, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you would fall with power this morning and convert their souls, that they might join us in that praise of that glorious rescue. And I just thank you, Father, that you are a God who is able to save to the uttermost and that you are willing to save to the uttermost. And so now, Father, as we come to your word, Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your law. Father, guard our eyes that we would not look to worthless things, but that with all of our strength and all of our love, we would look to you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your help in our time of need, which is now. Father, through the person of the Holy Spirit, glorify your Son, and glorify your own name on earth as it is in heaven, even right now. I thank you that you will, for Christ's sake, amen. So 1 John, um, this will be the dangers of the world, part two. Took me weeks to come up with that title. <laughs> Actually, Todd will tell you it took me about a minute because I couldn't remember what I titled the sermon last week, but this is part two. <laughs> So 1 John, I'm going to read in um, the opening chapters, uh, chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So this is John's warning. Um, we don't necessarily think of the Apostle John as an apostle of warnings. We think of him as the apostle of love. But as I mentioned last week as we began this little series, in his epistle... He points out that there are inconsistencies between those who are of the world and those who are of the church, the body of Christ. Um, and he's alerting us to these things. And this particular section we're in is the dangers that are in the world. 
They're dangers to God's people. They're traps, they're snares, they're temptations. They're things that come to us, and if we fall in love with them, there's trouble. There's big trouble. Last week we talked about mostly the lust of the flesh. The flesh, your human nature, that suit that you're sitting in and that seat that you're sitting in right now, the sarks. You are still a human being after all. And your flesh lusts against the Spirit. And it lusts against the things of God. Its power has been broken. The penalty of your sin has been removed. But you are presently in your earth suit, this corruptible body that will be one day made incorruptible by the power of Christ Jesus himself when he raises you up as he's promised he will do. So that was last week. <laughs> this week we get to deal with danger number two, and that's the lust of the eyes. These are John's categories. We want to be careful not to completely sever our flesh from our eyes because, as you can imagine, if you took your eyes out and set them on the counter, your flesh wouldn't function exactly the same. Um, so we don't want to sever them, but we do want to recognize that the apostle here is telling us there's something different about them. Although they work hand in hand, one feeding off the other, feeding each other, building each other up, there are some specific dangers when it comes to the lust from the eye that you want to be alerted to, and God's church needs to be alert. Because we walk in a world of darkness. We walk in a world that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air. We face every day, already this morning, everybody in this room has faced a temptation at some level. Whether you successfully fought against it or whether you just fell into it, I don't know. But you faced it. Because we live in a world that is constantly calling out to us. We see with our eyes things that will constantly try to draw us back away from Christ and back to ourselves because our self, the flesh, wants to be on the throne. And that's where the eye comes in. It's different, but it works together with all of these things. First thing we want to do is acknowledge something about the role of your eye. Your eye was created by God, and it's good. And it serves a good purpose. What purpose does geez, that was loud, sorry. What purpose does your eye serve? According to Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, you can read for yourselves in verse 22 and 23, he describes your eye as the lamp of the body. It's the lamp of the body. It is, in other words, the member of your flesh that provides light. Or in our understanding, sight, so that we can see, so that we don't stumble in darkness. That's why God has given you your eye. So the creation of your eyeball, the designed purpose of your eyeball is good, and it serves a good purpose. So we can't condemn our eye, the physical bulbs or whatever their shape they are in your head. They were put there by God for good reason. But if you continue reading in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, you'll notice in that same passage, Jesus gives a warning to his listeners. And he says this, If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great will that darkness be? What? What? How can light be darkness, you say? Well, we have to look at the whole passage to figure out what is the Lord saying here because it took me a while to get it. He couches that passage, and again, that's Matthew chapter 6, 22 and 23. Jesus is teaching before and he's teaching after. And in the first section before he talks about the eye being the lamp of the body, he warns his people, do not pursue worldly treasures because where you pursue that is where your heart will lie. So he's warning people, the treasures that you have should be eternal treasures. The things above, these are the things to be pursued, not the things of this world, because they're worldly things and you'll chase after them. And that's where your heart will go. Your sarks, your flesh will pursue the things of the world. So that comes right before the light passage. And right behind it, he gives another warning. And that warning says this, it is impossible to have two masters or you will love one and hate the other. You cannot, notice the language, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve the world and God. You must choose because it's impossible to do both. So in between those two instructions, he stops for a moment and he says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. It provides light to you. But if the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. For if the light that was intended to come through the eye that God gave you so that you could see in the darkness, so that you would not walk blindly through this world, becomes darkened by your pursuit of worldly things and your attempt to serve God and man, your heart will be filled filled with darkness, and that darkness will consume you. So the eye is good. But as Jesus is warning his listeners, and as the Apostle John is telling us in this passage today, the eye lusts for the things of the world because the eye is part of your flesh. It's part of the created being. And there's still sin present in this world. Your eye can actually provide darkness where it's created to bring light and it can dampen your heart and it works with your flesh to war against God the Holy Spirit. He's a person. He's not a theme. He's not a force. He's a person who resides in your heart and works within you to bring you to Christ-likeness and the lust of your eye wars against him. It brings an enemy force, and we need to understand our enemies. We need to understand the weakness of our own flesh. We need to understand how our eyes can be pulled away by their own lusts, their own desires for self. And that's why John is giving us this warning. So there's several ways that we're going to see this illustrated, and the best way to see the damage of what happens when we fail to recognize these warnings is to look at the lives of the people that God has given us a record of. to See how they dealt with these things. So first, when I say the lust of the eyes, most of us, our minds immediately go to what? 
sexual immorality, lust. That's what generally comes to the mind of somebody these current days. When you say lust, they think sex. Well, that's the first way that the lust of the eye actually does work. Sexual temptations, sexual immorality, sexual perversities. You will see this illustrated very well in a place and probably the most prominent place in the Bible that you're probably thinking of even right now is in David. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, as we read through there, we see that David, in the season that the kings go out to conduct war, sent his armies out to conduct their wars, and in the cool of the night he arose and he went out on his rooftop and he looked. He looked and he saw. And what did he see? He saw Bathsheba. And the Bible describes in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel that she was beautiful to behold. He looked and he saw, and what he saw was beautiful. Remember those words, because you're going to hear them several times this morning. He looked and he saw, and she was beautiful. And we know the story of the fall of David. But there's another example that I want to use here that illustrates how this sexual temptation works even with more intensity than David. And that is just a couple of chapters later in 2 Samuel chapter 13. David's son, Amnon, with his own sister, Tamar. When you read that illustration in verse 1 of chapter 13, you hear that Tamar was lovely. She was lovely. She was beautiful. And Amnon, her brother, loved her. When you read that word loved in that passage, it doesn't mean that he loved her with agape love like God loves her. He lusted for her. She caught his eye. She was, whoo, she was the bug's bunny eyes bulging out of your head. And as we go on, his love for her, his lust for her became so intense that he became physically ill. His friends could actually see in his person there was a problem. His demeanor was sad. His body was frail because he was lusting for the forbidden thing. This was his sister, a virgin princess of the king. She was off limits. But he couldn't break the temptation. He kept looking and he kept leering. And he kept desiring to the point where his physical body was shocked. And then what happens? He hatches a plot to get her. He deceives the king. He rapes his sister. Then he throws her out onto the streets. He wants nothing to do with her. That's how the lust of the eye Amnon knew that she was forbidden, but his eye lusted for her, and his eye spread that darkness into his heart, and his heart became polluted and completely sick to the point of physical illness. David, when he looked at Bathsheba, that immediate glimpse, he saw what was beautiful. He asked, who is this? It's the wife of Uriah, your servant. Well, she's married, didn't stop David. 
He wanted what he saw. This is David, the man after God's own heart. David's son falls into the same temptation, the same trap, sexual temptation. The flesh wants what it wants, and the eye is more than happy to entertain it. Pornography. You think you can watch that, and you won't be affected by it. You are deadly wrong. Deadly wrong. It is feeding into your mind darkness. If you're watching television and you see the junk that's on there every day, even the good shows that you can watch, the commercials come on, and it's all that stuff. And if you think it's not affecting you, you are deadly wrong. Because the eye is the lamp to the body. What goes in the eye is getting fed into your soul. And you need to be alerted to it. How can you recognize it? What can you do about it? We all are susceptible to it. But just knowing it's there doesn't give us what we need. What are we supposed to do? How can we recognize it? How can you recognize when the darkness comes into your own heart? How can you look into God's word and find help in your time of need? You can turn to the book of Genesis way back there. And you can look to the example of Joseph, who while he was in Potiphar's house, made the number one of Potiphar, who was a rich man who had everything, and he elevated Joseph because of his reputation to a position of honor in his house, giving access for everything that he had to Joseph, except for one thing. One thing. His wife. Because she was his wife. Joseph, you can run the house. You can oversee the slaves. You can take care of all the business. But that's my wife. You can't have that. Joseph understood that. But listen to these words in Genesis chapter 39, verse 6. tells us that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. So nice face, nice body. Look good. And in verse 7, the master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. She saw that he was handsome in form and appearance, and she looked on his beauty. Yes, that's right, men can be beautiful. And she longed for him. She desired, her eye started to lust for him. And she demanded that Joseph lie with her. I'm the master's wife. Joseph's response will help. As Joseph has this temptation put before him, his response is this, how can I do this great wickedness in sin against God? In his response is our answer. And it's a simple thing. We sang it in the first song. Recognize God's presence. When sexual temptation comes, when your eye is being filled and your heart starts to feel the trickling in of that darkness, recognize that God is sitting right there. He resides in your heart, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know you are the temple of the living God? That the Holy Spirit of God has actually made a place in your heart and He resides there. He doesn't go out for lunch so you can sneak away. He lives with you. He's always, ever 
present, David, the psalmist, there's nowhere I can go to get away from you, God. Whether I go to the furthest ends of the earth, to the bottom of the pits of hell, or to the heights of heaven itself, everywhere I am, you are. And you knew I was going there before I got there because you know my rising and my sitting. You know every word, every thought that's coming out of my mouth. Recognize that, that God is there. That's what Joseph did. How can I sin against God? He's right here. Recognize God is always and ever present. That there is nothing that you can do that he's not going to know about. What you've done in the dark will be brought to the light. And would you dare join a holy God to an immoral act? That's your defense. Recognize God's presence. Recognize that he's never left you alone. He'll never leave you alone. Because you're his. And he's a good, good father. The second way our eye lusts is probably the second most obvious way. And that's lusting for the things of this world. The things of this world. We're going to see that illustrated in Joshua. Yeah, I'm going back to the Old Testament today. Joshua chapter 7 gives us a record of the sin of Achan. If you remember back in those days, Joshua and the battle of Jericho, the Lord put all of the spoils of the city of Jericho under a curse. You could not take the spoils. They were all to be given to the Lord. And he gave them the city of Jericho. They marched around seven days. On the seventh day, they shouted, and the walls fell, and they overran the city. God delivered the city to them. Amazing thing that happened. But in the midst of all of that, Achan did something. He did it in secret. And he confesses in chapter 7, verse 21, when he is caught by God, he confesses what happened. And I want you to listen to these words. This is Achan speaking to Joshua, having been found out. I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I've done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, two shekels, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them, and I took them. Achan knew that they were under the ban, but when he saw them with his eye, and they were beautiful to behold, his eyes started to lust. Look at these garments. Wouldn't my wife look good in that? Couldn't I have some good stuff with 200 shekels of silver and a, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels? Boy, that would set me up. And he coveted them. And the darkness flowed into his heart. Sin was born. Sin resulted in death, just the way James describes it. 
The nation of Israel lost thousands of soldiers in the Battle of Ai, which followed because of the sin of Achan. They couldn't understand how they could capture the major city of Jericho and the city of Ai, which was a small and significant city. They were completely routed and overrun. They couldn't understand it because of the sin of Achan. Achan and his entire family were destroyed. That's darkness. That's death. And the Bible is full of accounts. Old and New Testament, over and over, we see it again and again and again. One of the things, if you've ever done a study, that you see most often addressed in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, yes, in the New Testament, money. Why? Because it's a thing in this world and our eyes lust for it. We can just as quickly be led down those paths to destruction when the light from our eye becomes darkness in our soul. And maybe even today as I'm sitting here reading this, maybe you're struggling with it. Maybe this morning you're seeing the danger that you're in. Maybe it's because of money. Maybe it's yearning for a home that you don't have or that somebody else might have. Maybe it's your possessions, anything, cars, nice guitars, anything. Even the things that are meant for good can ensnare you. Even the things meant for good, even the things that God in His gracious mercy hands to you can ensnare you. And we're all susceptible to it. Where can we find help? We look to God for help. We rest in God's provision. He is, after all, in our song today, a good, good father, perfect in all of his ways. And the Apostle Paul in the letter to the Philippian church gives us this answer. You've heard these words. I'm going to read them in chapter 4, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes this, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. To be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere, in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, because he's content. If God gives you plenty, praise God. If you have nothing and you find yourself like Job having what you had taken away from you and you're in sackcloth and ashes with boils on your body, praise God. That's being content. Resting, not struggling. Resting in God's provision. Trusting the words you sang this morning. He's a good, good father. If you ask your father for fish, he's not going to give you a rock. Your father has dressed the birds, dressed the flowers, dressed the world in beauty, provides for them, though they work not and toil not, they have to food to eat. The birds, 
How much more is he going to take care of you? Seek first his kingdom. Seek his righteousness. And all of this will be added to you. Be content that God knows. He is present. He's always there. He knows you're hungry. He knows you have abundance. He knows you have need. He will meet your needs according to his riches. Not out of his stinginess. You don't go to your father like when you were a teenager and grovel for 20 bucks knowing your dad's only going to give you 10. You go to your father and you ask him for 10 bucks knowing he'll give it to you and he gives you 50. That's God. Out of his abundance, he showers you with what you need. Even the things you don't even know you need, he gives you. Exceedingly and abundantly more than you can even think to ask for. He will give you. Rest in it. Don't chase the world trying to meet the goal that only God can meet. Don't be the rich fool who had so much abundance of crops, he, he, I'm going to go build bigger barns. Well, I know that guy sitting in the ditch over there could use a bowl of soup, but I'm going to build bigger barns. Why? So I can have ease and comfort in my old age. Because I can't trust God for that. I got to build up my 401k. I got to do all this stuff. Meanwhile, the person in the pew sitting right next to me is struggling to know how they're going to feed their kid next week. Rest in God. It was the widow who gave two mites that was praised by the Lord, not the rich guy who gave the 500 that we all went, ooh. She gave out of her lack. He gave out abundance. He didn't hurt him. Bill Gates giving you $1,000. He doesn't even know what $1,000 means. He can't even understand those numbers. Rest in God's provision. If God makes you a Bill Gates, give it away. Serve him with it. Glorify him with it. Be ridiculous in your giving. If God makes you a pauper, give all you have to him. Because he'll give you what you need tomorrow. So rest in God's provision. That's the key. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. How can you do that, Paul? How can, you, how can you live in a life where you don't know if you're going to get food tomorrow? Because I trust in Christ. And he gives me the strength, even when my flesh and even when my eyes are seeing that loaf of bread that I could steal because I am, you know, I'm a human. I have a right to that food, so I'm going to steal this thing. No, I'm not. Why? Because theft is a sin. Christ, give me the strength not to steal, but to trust that you're going to get me a piece of bread if I need it. Rest. Be content. Trust your Father, for he is good. The third way that our eye lusts is through jealousy and envy. We see this displayed again in the Old Testament, which was written for our help, Look on the chalkboard in my Sunday school class. I've got three different places that tell us this is why you need to know what's in the Old Testament. It's not there by accident. It's not just a good story. It's there to help you recognize the danger you're in. It's there to show you what will happen if you don't listen. It is true and pure and perfect in every way. Jealousy and envy. Genesis chapter 37. Back in Joseph's life. Only this time we're going to look at Joseph's brothers. 
you read that chapter, and it paints a picture of Joseph, who was the favored son of Jacob, his father. He was the son of Jacob's old age, and Jacob loved him more than he loved his older brothers. Loved him so much that he gave him a robe of many colors. And Jacob wore that robe in front of his brothers to make sure everybody knew, I'm the favored son, check my robe out. And then Jacob was given a dream. Excuse me, Joseph was given a dream. And Joseph shared that dream with his brothers. And we read in verse 11 of chapter 37, his brothers envied him as they used their eyes and as they lived their lives in the presence of their father Jacob and their brother Joseph, as they interacted with him, as they listened to him, as they witnessed him parading around in his special robes, as they experienced the favor of their father towards their younger son, their younger brother, the darkness grew. And it grew. And it grew. And it grew to a point where they actually executed a plan to kill him. Think about how dark your heart has to be to murder your own brother. You think jealousy and envy is not dangerous. You are deadly wrong. Jacob's, excuse me, Joseph's brothers, just like Achan when he saw the worldly riches, he was captivated by them. And the light that was supposed to be coming from his eye to his soul turned to darkness. Just like David, just like Amnon, just like all of these stories today that I have given you, all of these retellings from the scriptures, all the same, they looked and they saw and they lusted for it. Whether it was more stuff, whether it was more pleasure, or whether it was more position. The eye lusts. This particular manifestation of the lust of your eye is really dangerous. It's really dangerous. Why? Because it's the easiest one to hide. If you're lusting after that truck and you're taking all of your money and your wife's not getting what she needs or your kids aren't getting what they need because you're squirreling away money for a truck you don't need, it's easy for me to see that and say, hey, Doug, why are you lusting after this truck? And Doug's not lusting for any truck, by the way. Um, <laughs> that's easy for me to see. If you're lusting after women, that's pretty easy for me to notice. But if you're jealous of me, you're envious of me? I can't see that. It's buried in your heart. So it's dangerous because for some reason we think we get away with it. Just like Joseph's brothers thought they would get away with it. Oh, dad, he was eaten by a wolf. Here's his robe. There's blood all over it. I mean, they hatched a plot. You think you'll get away with it. You think you're unaffected by it. But it finds its root in your eyes. It ends up down in the heart. And maybe you've had a situation. Maybe you have a sibling that you're envious of. My brother, the doctor, 
Dad really likes him. I don't have a brother that's a doctor, by the way. <laughs> Wish I did, free medical care. <laughs> um, but maybe they're really gifted at singing. That's one of the questions you hear oftentimes, especially of parents, is which one's your favorite child? You want to know? Ask the children. They'll tell you. Jacob's brother, Joseph's brothers, knew who the favorite was. That story back with Amnon from King David, his brother Absalom knew who David's favorite was. And he envied him. Maybe it's a co-worker that you have that got the job you wanted. And in your heart, as you watch that unfold, you're working against them. So they'll fail. Maybe it's a minister person, ministry person. Josh works really well with kids. Ron can't. Ron's tried many times, messed it up, huh, Faith? <laughs> but Josh can. So Ron gets jealous of Josh. Look at the success he's having. Look at the success Mike is having with his Abundant Life class. I only have three people in my class. You see how quickly that can happen? You can turn. It can be your spouse. It can be anybody. We look. We see. We want. I want to be recognized. I want to be honored. I want to be noticed. The flesh. Through the eye gate. It feeds down into your soul. Your soul becomes dark. And you get ensnared by your own eyes. So how do you defend against this darkness? Trust in God's plan. Recognize His presence. Rest in His provision and trust His plan. Recognize that when you see that and you feel that coming up in your heart, recognize that God created Mike for just this moment. He gifted him with just those gifts. He put him in just that place and brought just those people. And Mike is doing something that only Mike can do because God wants it that way. God desires it to be that way. It's not up to me. It's not up to Mike. It's up to God. His plans are perfect. So he made Mike for that ministry. Recognize your jealousy that God didn't make you that way and then kick it out, rebuke it, repent of it, and look to God and say, thank you, God, because not only did you make Mike particularly the way you did, you made me particularly the way you did. And you've given me gifts and talents and put me at this point in time. And you've put people in my life that have built me up. You prepared me to be there for those that you put in my life that I can build up. Because all I want to do is all all of us want to do is say, look, look, look at Jesus. And maybe you do that through song. Maybe you do that through teaching. Maybe you do that through preaching. Maybe you did it on your face in a closet in prayer. Maybe you do that in the kitchen, preparing wonderful meals. 
Maybe you do that by walking up and putting your hand on somebody's shoulder and saying, I'm thinking of you. I'm pulling for you. I'm praying for you. But don't take my word for it. Go to God's word. Romans chapter 12. Paul reminds the church of Rome that to each one, a measure of faith has been given. And to each one, the Holy Spirit has given gifts. So if you've been given the gift of giving, give. If you've been given the gift of prayer, pray. Use the gifts, because to each one of you, they've been given. And each one of you has a measure of faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, again the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church, which is a complete mess, by the way. Paul says that the manifestation of the Spirit, the presence, the revealing, the manifestation of the Spirit, who in the same letter, he says, dwells in you, each one has been given a manifestation of the Spirit. For the profit of all. We are one body. And we are members individually. And each of us have a role to play. Some of you will be the eyes that will bring light to the darkness. Some of you will be the mouths that will proclaim the gospel. Some of you will be the feet that will carry forward the work some of you will be the hands that will reach down and hold people up. Some of you will be the hearts that break in prayer. But all of you are needed. All of you are necessary. I don't have to guess that. Why? Because you're sitting here. God doesn't make mistakes. He put you here for a reason. He gifted you to be here today for a reason. Recognize and trust His plan. Oh, but I want to be like that church. They've got a big youth group. They've got a big music program. They've got this and that and the other. If God wants us to have that, he'll provide it. We seek him, and we seek for every person that walks through those doors, we point away. Don't look at me. Look at him. Because I can't help you. But I know the one who can. And if you'll trust his plan, he will make it come to pass. His arm is not shortened. He has not become uncaring. He did not wind up the world and now he's just letting it run out and then he'll come in at the end and save it like the cavalry. He's working right now. Jesus said that. My father and I, we are working right now. The Lord Jesus is not sitting at the right hand of the father relaxing because he did his work. What's he doing up there? He's interceding for you right now. He's never quit serving you. He washed their feet. He's washing yours. Work. His plan is perfect. So when envy comes, when jealousy comes, when you look at Joseph and say, Joseph, Dad loves him more than me. Look at that robe he has. Get your eyes off Joseph. Judah, hey, quit looking at your brother. Peter, don't worry about John. You follow me. 
That was what Jesus told Peter. What about this one? Don't worry about him. You follow me. Don't worry about John MacArthur's gifts, John Piper's gifts. Trying to think of a musician that does Christian music, and I can't come up with one. <laughs> so you guys can think of one. Don't worry about their gift. You follow him. Because he's got a plan for you. And he's going to make it happen. Because that's what he does. Do you see the theme? All the remedies, there's one theme. Recognize God's presence. Trust God's provision. Trust God's plans. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep your eyes on the Lord. When the lust of the eye comes and when the sin that so easily ensnares us is creeping in, turn your eyes to Christ, the author and finisher of your faith, the one who is in all ways tempted just as you are and yet never sinned. For he himself is your defense and so you must turn to him in your time of need. Set your mind on the things that are true and noble and just and pure and lovely and of good report. If they have any virtue, if they have any praiseworthy qualities, meditate on these things. And set your mind on the things above, not of this earth. Set your eyes on Christ and you will be protected from the lust of your eyes. Father, I thank you that though these warnings are there for us, and though, Father, we tremble when we think of our own lives and how easily we have fallen into these things, we thank you, Father, that we don't have to remain in them, that you are just and faithful to forgive us if we'll confess our sins. And so, Father, on behalf of this congregation, we confess that we have fallen short, that we are weak, that we easily do chase after the things of this world. And, Father, we implore you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his own sake, Give us the grace. Give us the mercy. Create in us, Father, a clean heart and restore the joy of our salvation so that we can proclaim your name to the nations and let the nations begin in this room and in this city as we go out the doors of this building. Thank you that you'll do that, Father, because it brings glory and honor to your name and to your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is worthy of our praise. And we give it freely this morning to you, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Please stand and join.